Tech Talk with Jess Kelly. With VMware. Free your employees to work more securely from anywhere. Visit exertis.ie forward slash VMware. This is News Talk. Welcome along to this week's Tech Talk. Jess Kelly with you here on News Talk. Coming up over the next hour. We've been very disturbed to see over the past year or longer that content on TikTok can cause real damage to young people and can encourage young people to do things that are dangerous. TikTok is under investigation by attorneys general in the US. CyberSafe Kids joins us to discuss. What is done, the, the biggest propaganda channels removed, but not the system that enabled them to function. There are thousands more. So we ask them to get them removed and not enable Russian state-sponsored content. Kira O'Brien of the Irish Times will explain how big tech has responded to the invasion of Ukraine. And we'll hear from a cybersecurity expert about the prospect of more cyber attacks. Plus, Aidan McCullum will join me to discuss his book, Undisruptible. As always, you can email the show techtalk at newstalk.com or you'll find me on Twitter at JessKellyNT. Later in the show, we'll also take a look at what Apple is likely to unveil at its spring event on Tuesday. But first, as you've been hearing across the week, the situation in Ukraine is continuing to escalate. On the ground here in Ireland, protests have taken place along with gatherings in solidarity and collections of goods and foods. Ukrainians living here staged a protest at the Dublin HQ of Meta, the parent company of Facebook, earlier in the week, calling for Meta to remove Russian state-backed accounts and stop the spread of disinformation. News talk Stephen Murphy was there and spoke to Ukrainian Artem Notstep. I'm a Ukrainian living, living and working here since 2014. I'm originally from southeast of Ukraine, a small town, and uh, we've come here because we want to stop the war. We want to stop the killings. We, we have never wanted anything like that. And uh, war starts in the mind. There's been massive war mongering in the past decades about, the, like, you know, nobody believes that the, believe that the Russian troops are gonna invade Ukraine. But Russia prepared for that. It, it created deep splits in societies all across the globe. And the big platforms enabled it to do so. We ask big platforms to tackle this issue. I know there's already steps taken by Google and Facebook. We're very grateful for that. Ukrainians are aware of that and I'd like to say thanks. But also, we believe that these measures are not enough because what is done, the biggest propaganda channels removed, but not the system that enabled them to function. There are thousands more like, and they do already have means of identifying them. So we ask them to get them removed and not enable Russian state-sponsored content to get on the platforms. Well, stuff that I'm seeing is like, that, uh, it's as outrageous as some people still not recognizing that there is a war in Ukraine. And, and it's, it's been clear for many days. Uh, some people actually are saying that there's, like these are fascists, that the Russian army is fighting with the fascists. And these are my, my friends and family. That's who they're fighting for, with. You know, this is propaganda. This is a horrible thing but that makes people endorse, endorse violence and aggression and war crimes. That report from News Talk Stephen Murphy. Uh, Kira Ryan of the Irish Times joins me now. Kira, people around the world have been glued to the situation that is continuing to unfold in Ukraine. Uh, how has big tech in general responded so far? Well, in general, they have kind of come down on the, the Ukraine side of things. It, it's it's kind of strange because in the past, obviously, they've they've tried to project this neutral stance. You know, they try not to take sides or, or kind of, you know, 
make it look as if they're on any one particular side. But recent events like COVID-19, for example, has seen them clamp down on misinformation because it's very difficult to both sides some arguments. Um, and, you know, in, in the case of, say, Twitter and Facebook, they have labelled, um, you know, they've been doing fact checking. So they've labelled things that are, are deliberately misleading or have been determined by their fact checkers to be misleading. Um, in the case of Twitter, you know, they've they've directed people to proper information. So I suppose it, it, this is the, the natural next step. And I think in, in this case as well, you know, a lot of the, the tech companies are finding that it is very difficult to kind of try to, to sit on the fence on this one because, the coverage that is coming out of Ukraine and the invasion, the Russian invasion, you know, it's very difficult to argue that they should stay neutral in this case. So, I mean, you've seen for the likes, for example, the likes of Apple, they have paused their sales in Russia and they've limited access to Apple Pay. Um, you know, obviously, when it comes to, to, to stuff like that, you know, they, they don't have, I don't think they actually have an Apple store or, or at least as wide a retail operation as they would have, say, in North America and throughout Europe. So, you know, pausing sales there, you know, it's it's not that it's not a big deal. I mean, it is it is a big step to take, but, you know, it makes sense for them to do that. Um, they've also disabled the kind of the, the traffic and live incidents in Apple Maps as kind of a safety and precautionary measure, which Google has also done. And that's, you know, again, that's something that makes sense because you don't want to have this, you know, these big data uh, all this information pointing to where there are large gatherings of people that they could then use to be they could be used as targets. I mean, no tech company wants to be implicated in something like that. Um, also, Apple has removed the apps for RT and Sputnik from the App Store outside of of Russia. Um, Google, you know, obviously Google has several services under its umbrella. It's got like YouTube's Maps, the whole lot. Like Apple, as I said, it's disabled some of the live Google Maps features, um, like the the traffic uh, information. And you know, if you have if you go into to Google Maps, you'll see how busy places are. They've disabled that um, in Ukraine to kind of to help protect people. Again, it's a safety measure. Mm. Uh, they've also added alerts to the, the for UN resources for people who are searching for um, asylum information, refugee information. They've increased security features on Google accounts to protect people's accounts. Um, you know, it, there's all these kind of security things that they've done in the background. They've also on YouTube, they've blocked uh, YouTube channels that are related to RT and Sputnik in the EU and the UK. And they've also stopped uh, RT uh, using basically ad platforms to monetize all its channels. Now, what they are doing and Facebook and uh, Instagram and Twitter are, are, are also basically they're, they're keeping their services active in Russia um, because they want people, they say, they say they want people to be able to get um, different viewpoints because if you cut off the likes of, of Facebook and Twitter, Snap, TikTok, all that kind of thing in Russia, then they're pretty much just left with the Russian state uh, channels. And as we've seen, what's been shown on those states funded channels, those state control channels is very different to what we're seeing outside of, of, of that sphere of, of influence. Um, Meta obviously owns Facebook and Instagram. Um, they're demoting content. They've been very, very vocal about this. They're actually demoting content from the Russian state-controlled media outlets on Facebook and Instagram. And in, I suppose, in retaliation for that, they've basically said that their services are now being throttled in Russia. So you know, there'll be slowdowns, or you know, they won't be people won't be able to access it. But they basically said they're not going to stop, you know, kind of demoting this content. Um, Basically, the reason why they're demoting is because it's state sponsored, you mm -hmm. know, and it's propaganda. And the last thing I think Facebook needs after all of the, the scandals and the controversies it's been embroiled in, the last thing it needs right now is to have yet another one because, you know, they'll be accused of 
pushing out state-sponsored content and basically acting as a propaganda arm for Russia. Um, they're also fact-checking, applying labels to warn people of the source of certain content. They've blocked access to RT and Sputnik across the EU. Um, and they're also kind of taking down accounts that are engaged in what they would describe as inauthentic activity or information warfare and rolling out new privacy protections for Ukraine and users in Russia too, so that people will still be able to keep control of their accounts. So you might not be able to uh, say see somebody's friends lists. And that's, I think that's something that, that you know, it is important as well, because a lot of these protests that are taking place in Russia and Ukraine and all this kind of this, inf this um, pushback on the, the Russian forces and the Russian war effort is that, you know, people will use social media to organize. Now, if all of your social media activity can be seen by the, the authorities, you know, that does put people at risk. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So so big tech is absolutely taking action. Uh, my final question, though, Kira, relates to what we can do in terms of ensuring that information that we share on our channels is from legitimate sources and so on, because that is a, a part of the problem, not just in this situation, but in a host of situations. But there is an element of personal responsibility here as well, isn't there? There is. And look, I think, it, it, as you said, it applies across the board. It's not just for uh the Ukraine invasion. I mean, people should always check the source of, of where it comes from. There is, I know there is a tendency for people to say mainstream media is biased, but that doesn't mean that every other source that's not mainstream media is legitimate either. So, I mean, check the sources, check online, because there's been a lot of photographs and stuff that have surfaced and a lot of video footage that has surfaced claiming to be from the current, uh, the current kind of situation in Ukraine that has turned out not to be or has been you know say maybe seven or eight months earlier what is claiming to be current so you know if you do like say you do a reverse google image search or you know use tin eye to to search for images to see has this popped up somewhere else you know is this a faked image i mean i saw an image of um, a, a baby that was supposedly had a swastika on its arm that turned out to be completely fake i mean obviously that would be something that we would think you know that you would kind of think to check but mm -hmm. you know a lot of people are just kind of sharing and, and retweeting things without actually double checking them first and look and nobody's perfect we've all got caught by it we've all had an incident where you know this is you know, something has happened we've we've shared something that later turns out to be not quite what we thought but i think it, you know in the current situation we need to be very careful about what we're pushing out there because it, things become fact very quickly, mm -hmm. uh, even if they're not, you know, if they're shared by enough people, people will believe that this is fact. And, you know, we have to kind of take responsibility for our own part that we play in this. Kira O'Brien, reporter with the Irish Times. Thanks as always for joining us here on News Talk. Uh, Ronan Murphy of Smart Tech 247 is with me now. Ronan, the uncertainty in the air is palpable. Um, how real or how viable are the threats and the talks of threats of cyber warfare. Hi, Jess. Yeah, look, it's it's incredibly worrying. I mean, um, we're all witnessing the scenes that are happening in Ukraine, and it's incredibly distressing for everybody. And I mean, we've got staff there, and some of them have traded in their their keyboards for Kalashnikovs. So it's it, it really has hit home to us in a very profound way. Um, I think as the situation is evolving, and even last night we saw that there were strikes on the largest nuclear facility in, in Europe, in the Ukraine, um, it's incredibly worrying. I mean, it feels to a degree that cyber has taken a back, a back seat to, to all of the, the missile strikes and so forth that we're seeing and the loss of human life. 
but I think it'll probably stick its head up in a much more profound way in the coming weeks and months. Obviously, in the initial phases of the assault on Ukraine, we've seen some very destructive militia software being utilised to target their uh, critical infrastructure, their banking, their utilities, uh, their power grids, their, their water, and so forth. Um, I guess the worry is that um, as the as this starts to level out, how we will see the commercialization of that militia software. And what I mean by commercialization is that software was used by the Russian government to target uh, a country, a sovereign state. Um, that will now fall into the hands of organized criminals. And it'll be what to what degree do they use that or do they weaponize it to target uh, organizations in the West? And, 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 and in, in addition, you have to be very cognizant of the fact that the sanctions on Russia now are going to, realistically, it's going to mean that Russia are going to double down on their cyber offensive against the West. I mean, that's that's guaranteed to happen. So I think we're in a very uncertain phase of cyber warfare over the next 12 to 18 months. It's very, it's a very worrying um, situation that I think everybody finds themselves in. Can you just explain a little bit about the potential impact of cyber warfare? Because I know myself, every time I open my phone or watch the news or even listen to a news bulletin, you're hearing and seeing people fleeing for their lives or the loss of life. And it's very, very difficult to kind of compute anything beyond the devastation of that. But can you just explain why we need to be cognizant of cyber warfare and the impact that could have that would be alongside the horrific loss of life that we're already seeing? Yeah, and I think you've articulated that uh, very eloquently, right? It's it's very hard to think about cyber and the threat that's coming down the, the wire or coming down the internet when we're seeing bombs being dropped on residential neighbourhoods and children being be, be, having to flee for their lives, right? But of any country in the world, I guess Ireland has had the front row seat to the potential consequences of a, of a major cyber attack in so far as the HSE was hit with a, a, a very uh, destructive piece of malicious software. And what has actually uh, transpired over the last 10 days, Jess, is that the gang that uh, perpetrated that attack on the Irish state are very, very heavily linked to the Russian government. The Russian government um, and the, uh, the, 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 the Russian uh, military have very strong links to that, uh, to that Conti gang. So, I mean, we've had a front row seat. We've seen the, the destruction it causes, and we got off lightly, remember. We got the decryption keys, and it still cost over 100 million in damages and delayed waiting lists and so forth. Imagine if that starts to target electricity grids, and uh, water supplies and um, media and all the different uh, kind of horror stories that are very realistically a potential here, you know. And I think that that is terrifying and I, I don't think we're still fully aware of the consequences of it. Even though we saw the HSE cyber attack and yes, it caused disruption, the notion of, you know, grids going down, not having power, not having access to state services, a whole host of issues could arise. 
our countries equipped to deal with cyber attacks? You know, have lessons been learned? Because obviously we're not the only country to have been targeted by a cyber attack. There are numerous examples, as you said previously, like these things happen multiple times a day in multiple parts of the world at any given moment. So are governments ready for something like a proper cyber war? I don't think so. I, I, I think we're definitely, people are starting to take it more seriously and they're starting to invest in it, but I'm not sure they entirely understand the consequences of a very agitated Russian state unleashing its full cyber capabilities, because remember, they're not going to have much else to do. Um, these sanctions are economic warfare in their mind, and they will retaliate, be under no illusion, they will retaliate they will try and steal intellectual property. They will try and attack um, uh, government systems. They will try to undermine democracy. They will funnel fake news. I mean, we're, we're seeing firsthand how uh, unscrupulous Vladimir Putin is. And once he un unleashes his army of cyber terrorists to attack the West, I mean, all, all bets are off. Who knows what they're capable of? And look, it has come out that they were responsible for the HSC. The gang that attacked and uh, disabled the HSC in Ireland were hacked last weekend and proof has come out that they are heavily entrenched in the Russian government. So you could, you, you, you could argue the case that they've already lodged an attack on the Irish state and not, not that they were, they were you know, doing military exercises off our coast. Um, so, I mean, this is a teaser, I, I feel, for what's to come. I'm not trying to, you know, spread fear or anything, but I think it's just cold, harsh reality. I mean, we've got it. We've got a taste for it. And, and I, I think you could you could make the taste that we've had what happened with the annexation of Crimea in the Ukraine. Um, now will they start going more aggressively at the US and at the UK and at mainland Europe and so forth? And I think it's a very real possibility, I have to say. I mean, we're, we're all on extremely heightened alert across all of the cyber activity that we're conducting every single person who works in the company is as alert and as as worried as the potential for what's to come as i've ever seen them in the last 10 years another point i think it's important to make and we actually spoke about it the week of the cyber attack before the cyber attack happened the last person i spoke to was you and we were talking about an attack that had happened in the us the colonial pipe attack um and you made the point that there are different kinds of cyber attack. They don't always come looking for a ransom. Sometimes it's just to cause havoc. Sometimes it's to put out misinformation, disinformation and so on. Do, do the Russians, is there a typical MO for what, they, what they're doing? And is there something in particular that you and your team and your colleagues right around the world are looking out for? Yeah, it, look, the, it looks to me right now their mo modus operandi is absolute scorched earth policy. The malicious software and the viruses that they're building are being developed and deployed to destroy. There's no other way about it. It's a bit like their policy in terms of this invasion. They're, they're carpet bombing residential neighborhoods. The, 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 opera, the modus operandi of their software is similar. So the types of attacks we've seen in the Ukraine um, haven't been designed to disrupt, they've been designed to destroy. So the problem with those types of attack is they spill over the borders and they, they infect other networks and it's just the nature of how they're built, right? And we've seen this in 2017 with NotPetya and WannaCry and the hundreds of billions of damages that that's caused. Um, 
unfortunately, there's a the very real prospect we're going to see a ramp up in that type of activity, which is you know, it's in- incredibly worrying. And um, unfortunately, it's designed for destruction. It's, you know, it's, it's not like, it doesn't feel like they're looking for cash out of this or they're looking for Bitcoin or crypto or anything like that. It looks like they want to undermine people's faith in their governments and their ability to protect them. And so, like, what can be done? Is it a case of damage limitation rather than prevention? No, I think just prevention. I, I think prevention is very possible, but it just means that everybody has to up their game significantly. People have to be uber alert. People have to be cognizant of the of the of the threat that they're facing, and the adversary is is a very very dangerous and a very agitated adversary. And um, based on what we're warfare in cyberspace often mirrors warfare on the battlefield. You must remember that. And if you look at the tactics that. Vladimir is using in Ukraine and you make a parallel to that in cyberspace that's what we can expect and I, I'm under no illusion that's what we will we will experience in the coming 12 18 months because the sanctions will mean they have no other option they have to launch their own warfare and it's not realistic or practical for them to go firing nukes all over the world and trying to nuke every country in NATO the reality is that they will launch a cyber offensive and they will look for ultimate uh, scorched earth policy from that offensive. But uh, again, just trying to, to put it into context for people of the devastation of that and the impact of that, while it may not necessarily immediately cost lives, there will be ramifications. Yeah, well, you could argue it does cost lives. I mean, how many people were affected by the HSE system being down? How many people had delays in dialysis? How many people missed smear tests? How many people didn't get, you know, different types of cancer diagnosis in the middle of a pandemic? Um, and we're a relatively small country. So, I mean, the impact of this stuff is is unbelievably damaging. But I think it, it more so, if you think about their agenda, what better way to undermine a government then to attack systems, take them offline and then make the, the civilian population agitated that their government have an inability to protect them from this. Um, if I mean, if I were if I were Putin, that would be my agenda here. Mm. My agenda would be to undermine my government by making my people frustrated because we can't or our systems don't work because we're not prepared. And the truth is, these guys are these guys are very sophisticated at it. They're very good at it. That's been witnessed on many occasions. Um, can we defend it? Can we stop it? Of course we can, and we may well do. But it's going to be. I think there might be a few wake up calls before people fully get up get up to speed in terms of hardening their defenses, educating their staff, having the proper response capabilities to deal with the with, with what we're about to experience in the coming months and years. Yeah, plenty of food for thought there. Rona Murphy of Smart Tech 247. Thanks as always for your time. Uh, coming up next here on News Talk, Alex Cooney of CyberSafe Kids will join me to discuss the investigation into TikTok that has just kicked off in the US. TikTok on News Talk with VMware. Free your employees to work more securely from anywhere. Visit exertus.ie forward slash VMware. Welcome back to Tech Talk. This is Jess Kelly with you here on News Talk. As always, you can email the show techtalk at newstalk.com or you'll find me on Twitter at Jess Kelly NT. We've been very disturbed to see over, over the past year or longer that content on TikTok can cause real damage to young people 
and can encourage young people to do things that are dangerous. That was the Attorney General of Connecticut outlining the reasons why a number of attorneys general in the US are launching an investigation into TikTok. Alex Cooney of CyberSafe Kids joins me now. Alex, welcome back to the show. I'm intrigued to know what was your initial reaction when uh, you saw that this investigation was going to take place? Because we've spoken in the past about pretty much every platform. And my impression was that TikTok was designed with privacy in mind from the outset. It was doing and taking a lot of initiatives to look after users. So were you surprised when this investigation was announced or was I being a bit naive to think that, you know, maybe it was slightly better than what else is out there at the moment? I know what you mean, because I think TikTok perhaps, particularly over the last couple of years, I've noticed maybe has led the way a little bit in terms of improving safeguards, uh, talking about the need to to protect children on their platforms, um, you know, talking about things like closing uh, underage accounts and so on and, and publishing numbers around that, making changes ahead of the age appropriate design code. Uh, which they said wasn't driven by the age appropriate design code, but um, maybe the cynics among us would would see that as a big driver for for those changes. But they were ahead in terms of their announcements than than some of the other big platforms. Um, but that doesn't mean that we don't need to look at them along with all of the others. It's an incredibly popular platform. We've seen that with with the age group that we've been surveying, the eight to twelve year olds. Um, it is the most popular. Um, well, behind YouTube. Uh, but in fact, the, the children are much more likely to be posting videos and so on to uh, TikTok than YouTube, we found. So, yeah, I think we all of these services should be scrutinized. Uh, we've heard a lot about a Meta's platform, particularly Instagram, uh, but TikTok uses some similar uh, practices in terms of holding users' attention and directing content to them. Uh, So I think, yeah, it's important to shine this light on them. I thought the language used by the attorneys general uh, when they were announcing the investigation was quite interesting because it wasn't just trying to get a better understanding of how the platform works or anything like that. The the quote was that they are concerned for the safety and well-being of children. And I think given all that we've heard in recent months from the Facebook whistleblower Francis Haugen, this is very much at the forefront of people's minds, which is a good thing because, as you said, we can't give anyone a free pass and trust that they're doing the right thing. So explain to us a little bit about where the concerns would lie with TikTok, because not everybody's in on TikTok. A lot of our listeners now wouldn't be on TikTok. So explain what the concerns would be when it comes to our young people. Well, first of all, just to contextualize it, we, we found about 44% of our of the 8 to 12-year-olds that we surveyed, and that was almost 4,000, were on TikTok. So it's an incredibly popular platform with children, which I'm sure many of your listeners are, are aware of. I think the things to be concerned about, about, about are very similar to the things that we would be concerned about in term, on Instagram. So it's this, uh, you know, it's this idea that content is being directed to, towards them based on interests that have been determined through the through the algorithms. So, you know, if they show an interest in, say, a particular recipe that might be perceived as a, as a diet recipe or a particular hashtags related to food, they're going to start being pushed more and more content and, it, and it's likely to become more extreme. There was a report published, um, I think it was last year, by the Five, uh, the, the Five Rights Foundation, and it, it looked at a number of platforms, including Instagram and TikTok, and found that, you know, they, they're using a number of measures to, to, to determine what content 
to push at uh, their users and it's not making allowances for children so that so that algorithm isn't saying oh, oh, this is a child and we need to therefore block certain content it is just pushing um co any content uh, at them so that, that that's a concern what kind of content they're seeing the more kind of extreme nature of the content uh, as as their their interests are determined um also the kind of rabbit holes that they can fall into you know that again that the, the report i mentioned just there talked about it surveyed a number of children who talked about losing track of time and um you know half the day is gone and they're just scrolling and scrolling um, you know, again, we also need to be concerned about what children are posting online in terms of the content and what they're sharing through that content um, and, and, and things like comments on posts and so on. Um, so there's there's lots of things that we need to look at. I mean, obviously, the, the reason children are on this platform is because they love it. It is it is fun and it's engaging and it was probably the, the platform of, of the lockdowns. You know, the, it, you know, the, we could see how much fun it was, but that doesn't mean we don't also need to look at some of the some of the risks and downsides to this. Yeah, one of the things that struck me, and this is a sign that I'm getting old now, but when I first signed up to TikTok, it didn't, you don't, you don't interact with TikTok the same way you do other social platforms. And by that, I mean, it, it takes you a minute or two to figure out how to actually get out of the stream of videos. You know, swiping up just brings you to more content. It doesn't get you out of the app and small things like that, the way it's built it kind of struck me like a casino. You know, everywhere you turn, there's just more slot machines. There is no exit. And I do think elements of that, we, we do need to be mindful of it. I mean, yeah, they, I think slot machines is a really good analogy. You know, these these apps, and, and it's not just TikTok, but it, a, a lot of these apps are absolutely designed to hold our attention for as long as possible and to get us to really engage with the content. And, you know, as France and Francis Haugen uh, found or, or said, you know, when anger and more extreme emotions like that encourage greater engagement and, and therefore that kind of content is, is prioritized. So I think we do really need to be aware of that and, you know, be understand that we our time and attention is the thing that they want here. In terms of th this investigation, because there has been a spotlight on tech companies, particularly when it comes to our young people, um, are you hopeful that any dramatic change will come because I feel almost like we're, we have the same sort of conversations every few months and nothing major comes from a legislation point of view or from a reform point of view. So are you hopeful that anything will come of this? I mean, I think quick change is is not going to happen. You know, what, what we really need are kind of changes in, in social norms and, you know, uh, standards that are put in place that, are, you know, that we're monitoring that the, the, the online services are adhering to those standards, uh, you know, that there's kind of design ethics that are agreed and put in place. Um, you know, so there's just a much greater de degree of accountability across the board, but we also need to look at, you know, how we're educating children, how we're supporting children and parenting children on this. There's there's a lot of change that needs to happen. In terms of the regulation, we know it's coming down the tracks. We've got the Online Safety and Media Regulation Bill here in Ireland, um, you know, could well be passed this year. Is it going to be groundbreaking? Is it going to make all the difference? You know, obviously I hope so. And we've been lobbying along with other groups to ensure that it's 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 robust, it's strong. The office has teeth that they really can hold the online services to account. We feel we've got this added responsibility because we host so many of the headquarters of these companies here in Ireland. Um, but it's, it is going to take time and uh, we need to see these changes obviously across the board. And that's the thing about the online services that, you know, they're not, 
bound by national boundaries. You know, they 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 are global, and we need to see global changes uh, and, and um, you know companies uh, that really consistent standards across the whole world, so that children across the world are uh, are, are experiencing safe and positive um, uh, time on online. My final question is going to be one that I've asked you before, and I, I know the answer, but I feel it's important to ask, and that is, do we need to do more to engage parents in terms of education of these platforms? Because it's one thing focusing on the children, and obviously they're incredibly important, we need to look after them. But as I can see, and from, from talking to parents and following conversations online and so on, this is a bit of a wild west when it comes to the parenting aspect. It really is. And, and I think, you know, we just need to look at the kind of protections and, um, and legislation and other measures that we have in place to uh, to protect children in the offline world. You know, they, they can't drink, they can't drive, they need to go to school and be educated. Um, you know, they're being parented on things like learning to ride a bike. You know, we've all these things in place. They can't go and see an over 18s movie at a, a, at a cinema. You know, we've all these things in place to ensure that they where possible that they have a safe and secure childhood and those things are not being replicated online and that is really concerning and and, and obviously responsibility lies in a number of places but we do need parents to be parenting their children we need them to be preparing them for this uh, online journey we need to be supporting them in an ongoing fashion and putting boundaries in place and having conversations and doing all of those things much in that they in the way that they would with other areas of their children's lives especially those that involve risk so we need that to be really consistent practice uh, we obviously want to see changes in the education system so that uh, digital literacy, digital well-being are kind of core topics within the ed- education system and really emphasised because children are living out so much of their lives online and this this is really essential and, and a core life skill these days. And then we need to be putting that accountability on the online services as well. When things go wrong online, uh, it, to, my, to my mind, too much onus is put on the parent and the child in that situation. And we need to ensure that, the, that there is accountability on these companies that are making so much money um, you know, from our time and from our attention and from our engagement with their, with their services. Uh, so I want to see some of that responsibility put squarely on their shoulders as well. Yeah, absolutely. Great stuff. Well, look, Alex Cooney of CyberSafe Kids, thanks as always for joining us here on News Talk. Uh, when we come back, Aidan McCollum will join us to talk about his new book, Undisruptable. Stay tuned. Tech Talk on News Talk with VMware. Free your employees to work more securely from anywhere. Visit exertis.ie forward slash VMware. We're introducing three revolutionary products of this class. The first one is a widescreen iPod with touch controls. The second is a revolutionary mobile phone. And the third is a breakthrough internet communications device. So, Three things, a widescreen iPod with touch controls, a revolutionary mobile phone, and a breakthrough internet communications device. An iPod, a phone, and an internet communicator. An iPod, a phone. Are you getting it? These are not three separate devices. 
This is one device. And we are calling it iPhone. That was Steve Jobs unveiling the very first iPhone way back in 2007. And we're going to hear more from Apple this coming week because they confirmed that on March 8th, so this coming Tuesday, they will host an event. Uh, The tagline is peak performance. So we're expecting to get a new iPhone SE, which is their more, and I say this in air quotes, uh, affordable iPhone. Uh, We're expecting it to have a better chipset, better camera, and also be 5G enabled. But the thing that I am most excited about is the potential of a new iPad Air. Um, We are very big fans of iPad Air here on this program. We put the iPad Air up against the latest version of the iPad Pro. You can watch that video in full on Newstalk's YouTube channel. Um, But a spoiler alert, I much preferred the Air. I think it is the best day-to-day productivity tool you can buy. Um, So we will, of course, be glued to that announcement from Apple, which is taking place at 6pm on Tuesday, uh, Irish time. We will have all the latest right here on Newstalk. But I am now joined by Aidan McCullen. And Aidan is someone who has lived multiple lives already and he's still incredibly young. He has been a rugby player, he has worked in the media industry and he has worked in the tech industry. And he is now the author of Undisruptable, a mindset of permanent reinvention for individuals, organisations and life. Aidan, you're very welcome to Tech Talk. How are you? I'm fantastic. Great to be with you, Jess. I'm really excited to talk to you because uh, we worked together in one of your many lifetimes. As I said in the introduction there, you're someone who is still incredibly young, but you've lived uh, in a number of fascinating areas that are all very dynamic, all very demanding, and you've continued to excel. So when I when I picked up your book and I read that the first little bit, which is why you should read this book, I was instantly hooked because this is something that is applicable to anyone regardless of what sector you're working in what stage of your career you're in whether you're trying to apply it to yourself or your business can you just give us a brief introduction to the concept behind it yeah so like you said there i've i've had an incredibly lucky life and i've i've had played a few roles in life and i've done pretty well in those roles but i i'm a i'm a very quick learner but I'm also a learner, so I'm very interested in learning the whole time. And the book really talks about um, this mindset that I kind of stumbled upon, which I call permanent reinvention, which is the idea that with things moving so fast, like we've experienced in the last two years in particular, that will only get quicker and quicker. And no sooner have we finished a pandemic than there's a war. And those type of disruptions that we experience in life will continue to arise and therefore, we actually need to have this kind of mindset that we can adapt to them and be agile and flexible and open to the changes that will come. And that's not only important, like you identified, for business people, for organizations, but it's so important for everybody, for children, for adolescents, for people going to college, that it's not necessarily a subject matter expert that you're going to be become. It's actually open to learning and forgetting what you might have learned in the past more importantly as well unlearning is as important as learning yeah you give a brilliant example and one that i often cite when i'm talking about how fast-paced this sector is a technology sector is and that is of nokia you know back in the day so back when you were playing rugby nokia was the thing that you think of when you think of mobile phones 
but they weren't quick enough to embrace a, a different operating system. So whether that was Android or whatever it was, and suddenly they disappeared from the face of the earth. Now, we know that they're back through HMD Global, but that's an example and it's a perfect summary of how you can be the biggest fish in the pond. But if you don't move with the tide, you could get left behind. And I think that to me really jumped out as, as I said, like just an example of how it doesn't matter where you are in your career, where your life, you, you need to constantly adapt. Yeah, it's a great example. And it's a poster child, really, of disruption. But it's a sad story. The story essentially was they were magnificent innovators for a very long time. They had started off life as a textile company merged then with a rubber factory as times changed when the war broke out they started to create gas masks for the army or galoshes or wellington boots for people at the time and then when the war thawed and the socio-political landscape kind of settled a little bit they recognized people had more disposable income so they started to create consumer goods like tvs and through that then stumbled upon the ability to create telephony telegrams etc and created their famous Nokia 3310. At one stage, they owned half the planet from a mobile device perspective. And when they heard rumors that Apple were gonna release a phone, they scoffed at them, they laughed at them like so many others did. Actually, the other disruption child, which is BlackBerry, they, they were the same. They just scoffed at the idea, couldn't understand the fact that this phone didn't have, the iPhone that is, didn't have a keyboard and that customers would not accept that. But there's a key point behind it, and it's key to a lot of the devices that you covered on your show, is that Apple understood the power of exponential change, that every 12 to 18 months or so, I think known as Moore's Law, after the Intel founder, Gordon Moore, he coined this phrase that technology becomes twice as fast, halves in price, but also halves in size. So devices become smaller and more powerful. And that's why we're seeing this powerful devices in our pockets more and more. But in today's age, they're starting to combine. So AI is combining with Internet of Things, combining with artificial intelligence and combining with these sensors that are becoming smaller and smaller. And now we're on the onset of quantum computers, as you know well. And Nokia stopped recognizing the changes in the landscape while the opposite was Apple who leaned into them and one of the saddest things I discovered was that Nokia R&D professionals had actually created the idea of a one-touch phone, one-button phone, and an iPad, had brought it to senior management and told to get out of the room. And they even went a step further, Jess, and they recognized that there was an opportunity for a new product line, a new way to earn money for Nokia, which was the idea of the App Store. This was 2004. The iPhone didn't grace the stages over in California until 2007. So you can imagine how those people would have felt. And this fascinates me that oftentimes people have the answers within organizations, but they're just not given the opportunity to share their ideas. Their ideas are not embraced because oftentimes the organization is successful and the successes can often defeat us. Yeah, and I think sometimes you can look at it as a safety blanket. And and if you read the book, your book, in the context of an individual as well, you know, you could look at your life and think, you know what, I've got a job that I like. I've got a roof over my head. I'm actually okay. Maybe I don't need to, you know, push myself. Maybe I don't need to enter that state of what you say is, you know, permanent reinvention. 
But I think that's a dangerous thing because you miss out on opportunity. So for people listening now who are contemplating picking up your book, can you just explain how do you get yourself into that mind frame of pushing yourself when you don't need to be pushed or maybe when you don't want to be pushed? And this complacency affects organizations. You know, one of the really interesting ones, Jess, I saw recently was uh, Coinbase, which is a cryptocurrency exchange over in the US, very successful organization. And they took their eye off the prize because they were successful. They were riding the wave of Bitcoin. And along comes another company in Malta, Binance, and they started to offer different coins, et cetera, and then almost toppled this organization, which is a relatively new startup, but only started back in 2009 or so. And so just wanted to emphasize that this doesn't just happen, legacy organizations like Nokia or BlackBerry, it happens the best organizations that are just new organizations as well. But organizations are just masses of individuals. And we all become complacent at some stage, particularly when we're successful. We try to milk the cash cow that we've created. When we get to the top of the ladder, we kind of tend to batten down the hatches and stay there. And oftentimes when we do get to the top of the ladder, we realize that ladder might be against the wrong wall and we don't go to change things. And one of the real aims of the book is to not just identify that this happens at organizational levels from disruption perspective, but people get disrupted all the time. And we're going to see more and more personal disruption where people are not open to the changes that are inevitable in these times, that people who will have been very successful, have benefited from the way things used to be, will be suddenly disrupted by things like artificial intelligence, because artificial intelligence gets more powerful with time, like I was saying there with Moore's law or exponential growth. But us humans, we tend to settle down a little bit. We tend to stop learning. We tend to stop unlearning and learning from our mistakes, etc. And this mindset of constant learning becomes really, really important. And I give a great example in the book of Arnold Schwarzenegger, which is an unusual one. Somebody who became a magnificent uh, bodybuilder, the youngest bodybuilder, Mr. Universe of all time, winning a record uh, number of times. But when he became Mr. Universe, he went over to California and he continued to learn. He took lessons in the American dream, in building, in business, in acting, in English, believe it or not. And he was building for his future reinvention, which would be an actor. And the funny thing, and this happens to those anybody listening who have announced to the world, I'm going to do something entirely different. Oftentimes you get met by huge resistance. The people you expect will support you are often the people who reject the idea the most. And it absolutely flattens us. And what I say is, just like Arnold Schwarzenegger, he announced to the world he's going to become the highest paid actor of all time. Everybody laughed at him. There's a famous interview in which he's interviewed by a journalist who asks him, what's next for you, Arnold, after becoming Mr. Universe? And he said, I'm going to be the highest paid actor of all time. He laughs at them visibly in the interview. And this is what we experience. And I say, see those moments as milestones and not millstones. See them as a sign that you're pushing far enough. You're doing something new. You should be outside the comfort zone because outside the comfort zone is where the learning happens. And to my experience, like you mentioned earlier on in professional sport, you only actually get growth, say, in a muscle when you stretch it a little bit, when you push it a little bit far. 
then you take a moment to rest and let it sink in a little bit and then you go again and it's the exact same for any new endeavor and we push into the fear we lean into the fear because in those moments of fear is where the greatest growth happens yeah and I, and I found when I was reading the book and I'm about three quarters of the way through that you know learning and having that openness to learning really does make a difference and that doesn't mean you have to go to Harvard or you know get an MBA or whatever it is it can be as simple as picking up a book or researching a topic or you know watching a documentary just broadening your horizons to different points of view different voices different experiences that all does weave together and enhance the fabric of your life absolutely and you know I you know you mentioned me and you we work together and that's almost a decade ago, believe it or not. And I've seen your massive growth and it's fantastic because you were always a learner and that learning, that ability to learn and that desirability to learn is absolutely key. And many of us have bad experiences from learning. We didn't enjoy school, for, for example, but learning is everywhere. It's omnipresent now. You can learn on YouTube, your, your tech talks, for example, that you did recently, you can learn from books. Coursera courses, they're only like $40. You don't have to go very far. Stanford degrees or Harvard degrees can come to you because we can take them now online, including buying the certificate and not for thousands. We're talking for tens here. Mm. Recently, for example, I, I leaned into a course on understanding DeFi. So the the defragmenting of finance or the cryptocurrencies for example, blockchains, all that type of thing. I don't have a clue about that stuff, but I want to learn about it because it's the future of finance. And those are the ways you start. You start with the things that you're curious about, because if you're curious about something, you're more likely to stick at it. You're not going to do something you don't like doing, so don't do it. We have so much more choice than ever before. We live in a world where it's the gig economy. We live in a world where we can work globally from the comfort of our own home. So our choices are greater. And despite all the disruption that is happening in the world today, we have huge opportunities to learn, huge opportunities to unlearn and to find roles and gigs. They don't have to be full-time roles that can actually inspire us and ones that we'll stick to and continue to learn from and hopefully make a great living from too. Yeah, absolutely. I think, you know, I've, I've said it a few times since that the pandemic has sort of started to wind down, that although we went through a period of great uncertainty, as you said there, there are so many possibilities and the new way of working, new attitudes, new willingness to embrace, new ways of doing things. It's actually great. You just need to have that will and that get up and go to try and make it happen. Uh, if you want to hear more on this topic and if you want some stories that will inspire you or scare the bejesus out of you and make you stop doing things as you're doing them right now, you can pick up Aidan McCullen's book. It's called Undisruptable, A Mindset of Permanent Reinvention for Individuals, Organisations and and life. Uh, Aidan, thanks so much for your time. Absolute pleasure. Thank you, Jess. And that is all we have time for this week. If you missed any of the show, you can listen back in full on the News Talk app powered by GoLoud. I'll be back with Shane and Kira on News Talk Breakfast on Monday morning. John Friday's up next here with Screen Time. Enjoy the rest of your weekend.